Good morning. It's good to be here. Um, if you haven't turned there, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John 5. And I would encourage you also to keep your Bibles open or your, your phones open to the passage because we're actually just going to go through it, you know, verse by verse. Say, you know, go through the verse, give a comment, go through the verse, give a comment. So if you don't have it open in front of you, you may have a hard time following along. Um, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the passage, so I want to kind of review this so that we're all up and we understand what the context is. We're actually jumping in in verse 30 in the middle of a long dissertation or testimony that Jesus is giving. And the circumstances around that testimony, you really have to go back to the start of chapter 5 to understand. And I want to kind of do that just so that, again, so that we set the scene, we don't forget what the context of why is he even saying what he's saying. And it all started with uh, that Jesus is in Jerusalem. We don't know when this is in his ministry, but he's come to Jerusalem for a feast. And as part of that, he ends up healing a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus miraculously heals him. And as part of that healing, tells him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And all was well and good except that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And so as this man who has been in, in just laying on a bed basically for 38 years, stands up, miraculously walks, carrying his bed, the Jewish religious leaders see him and say, hey, you can't carry your bed, it's a Sabbath. As you can imagine, that probably was the furthest thing from his mind, right? He literally has just been given his life after 38 years. And they say, who told you to carry your bed? Or he said, the man who healed me told me to pick up my bed and carry it. And they said, well, who healed you? Which to me is kind of comical because I thought, as you read that, it's like, well, how many people are walking around healing men from 38 years of being an invalid, right? And yet they say, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. Well, later on, Jesus finds him in the temple and says, make sure you don't sin anymore so that nothing worse befalls you. Well, once this man who's been healed sees who Jesus is, he makes a beeline back to the religious leaders and say, that's the guy who healed me. And the text says um, in verse 16 of chapter 5, it says they started persecuting him because he, had, he was doing these things on the Sabbath, meaning he was healing on the Sabbath. In response to their persecution, we don't really know what that means. We don't know what they were doing, but they, whatever that means. In response to that, Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Well, the Jews understand what that statement means, because what he just said was, God is my father. I am the son of God. And the ramifications of that, or the, the, what, what that means is, and they understand, the, the Jewish religious leaders understand this, he just claimed equality with God. So now, whereas before they were just upset that he was a Sabbath lawbreaker, now he's a blasphemer. And they move from wanting to persecute him to wanting to kill him because, they've just made himself, because he's just made himself equal to God. Now, as a result of their outrage then, he launches into this 30-verse-long testimony about himself. And that's what started in verse 19. And two weeks ago, that's what Chris took us through in 19 to 29. And then today, we're going to finish the last half of that and finish up what Jesus is saying about himself. But there's one nuance to this that I, that I want to make sure that we don't miss. 
And that is, if you go back to this story between this man that he healed and the whole kind of the whole thing, that you understand that Jesus could have handled this completely differently. Because originally, the man couldn't identify him. So Jesus could have healed the man, melted into the crowds, end of story, nothing else happens. But instead, Jesus circles back around and finds the guy in the temple. And you have to figure, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen as a result of finding this guy, right? It's not like Jesus is saying this and then is later on surprised. Jesus knows this guy is going to go to the religious leaders and tell them, that's the guy. And so when we think about it from that standpoint, we understand that Jesus went went looking for this confrontation with the religious leaders. This wasn't something he avoided. He actually actively invited this confrontation because he wants them to know who he is and he wants to give this dissertation. And so as we read through this, I think what we have to keep in mind is what the tone of Jesus' comments are. That as Jesus gives this speech, this isn't meek and lowly Jesus. This is more kind of in-your-face Jesus. This has a little bit of a you-can't-handle-the-truth tone to it. And that he speaks very authoritatively, very emphatically about this is who I am. Now, what Chris went through two weeks ago in 19 to 29 was Jesus, Jesus giving this testimony about himself. And he talks in verse 19 that I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. Whatever he does, that's what I do. And then he says, the Father shows the Son all things. Later on, he says, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. Then he says, the Father doesn't judge anyone, but he gives the authority to judge to the Son. And so I have authority to do great works. I have authority to grant life. I have authority to judge in the end times. All of this. And really, again, you have to understand what his audience, these religious leaders, would be doing as he's saying these things. Because what Jesus essentially is doing here is he's saying, if you think that first statement was outrageous, then you're going to have your head explode with all the rest of the things I'm going to say, right? So he gets down to verse 29, and he has testified completely of himself. And then he gets to the part of the passage that we're going to study today, and and, and he kind of pivots, and he says, but don't just take my word for it, because I'm going to give you four witnesses who witness to me, who, or who witness for me, and testify that I am, in fact, who I say that I am. And so what we're going to cover is these, the four witnesses' testimony that he's going to call on, and they're going to testify to the same thing that he has, and then he's going to use their testimony and the religious leader's rejection of both him and the witnesses that he calls and draw conclusions based on that on what the the real status, theology, and faith of the religious leaders are. Does that make sense? You all all with me on that? Okay, so he's going to pivot. He's going to say, don't, I'm not just going to, if I just testify to myself, that's one thing. I'm now going to call other witnesses to testify for me, and now that has some significant ramifications for you guys who don't believe it and who reject it. And then we'll draw some applications from that. So, if everybody's with me, let's look in your Bibles. Let's go to start in verse 30, and we're just going to work our way through the text. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is somewhat of a repeat of verse 19. 
Because up in verse 19, he kind of said the same thing. I don't do anything on my own. I do what the Father tells me to do. Here, I don't judge on my own, but as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because it's from God. What's interesting about both of those verses, 19 and 30, is that in both of them, you see a great humility and an incredible self-exaltation in the both, of both of them. Because on one side, he's saying, I, am, I humble myself and submit to the Father. But on the other side, he's saying, since we essentially think with one mind and act, with, act and speak with one voice, we are one. And so there's both humility and incredible self-exaltation, all at the same thing. And by the way, I think it's not too much reading between the lines to, to assume that the people listening to him get these nuances to what he's saying and are probably getting angrier and angrier and angrier as he speaks. The other thing that's interesting about verse 30, and we're just throwing this in for free, but really what he talks about here is how we all are supposed to live. Because he says, I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That kind of goes along with what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, right? Where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. That's pretty much what Jesus is saying here, right? That's how all of us really are supposed to live. Well, then verse 31, he sets up what he's about to do in verse 31 because he says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. So what he acknowledges, hey, everything I've said up to this point, I've been testifying about me. And if that's all we did or if that's all I did, then you could say, well, that's just you testifying about you and that's not valid. And the reason it's not valid, by the way, is under Mosaic law, you had to, it took the testimony of two witnesses for anything to be accomplished. You couldn't, be, you couldn't be convicted of a crime based on the testimony of one witness. It takes two. No, you couldn't make a claim before the court by just one witness. You couldn't just go in and testify on your, on your own behalf. You had to have someone else. And so Jesus acknowledges that. If I alone bear witness of me, my testimony isn't true. And by saying it's not true, he just means it's not admissible in the court, essentially. So let me remedy that, is what he says. Let me call some other people to testify for me. And that's in 32. And here's our first witness. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. He's referring to God the Father there. If you think about it, if you're going to call one your witness, if your first witness is God, that's a pretty good one, right? And that's what he does here. I call to the stand God. And that's what he does. And he says, by virtue of having God the Father now testify for me, and by the way, he doesn't explain right here how that works, but we'll get to that here in later verses. But he says, by having God come, now it's no longer just me, but, me, or, but God and me testifying, God and I testifying for me on my behalf. So now I do have two testimonies, and his testimony I know is valid and true because, after all, he's God, right? So that's the, fir uh, the first witness. Second witness is verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Who's John? That's John the Baptist, right? And this, what he actually talks about here when he says, you have sent to John, is a narrative that the apostle John, not to get confused, the guy who wrote the gospel we're studying, relates in chapter 1. He says after, when John the Baptist is down in the Jordan River, everybody's coming to him. He is the talk of the town, essentially, Right? And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders send, some, send somebody to him and say, are you the Messiah? And if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? 
because of the prophecy in Malachi that said Elijah would come back at the great terrible day of the Lord. And John says, no, I'm not either one of them. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. However, the Messiah has come. I am the one who is proclaiming that the Messiah Messiah is here, and the Messiah is greater than me. And that's why Jesus says about him, there is another who, I'm sorry, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Because that's what John did. That's all John did, right? We know that. Verse 34, but the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. John's witness was great, but in all actuality, I didn't need it because I have God. But his testimony was true, and frankly, religious leaders, if you had believed it, you would be saved because his testimony was good and right and true. But I didn't need it because I have the testimony of God. That's what he's saying. Verse 35, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Notice verse 35 is all in the past tense. So John probably at this point is either already imprisoned or potentially already dead. John doesn't tell us anything about when this happens, when this occurs in Jesus' ministry, so we have no idea. But the fact that John, Jesus talks about John in the past tense probably means he's kind of off the scene now. But notice what he says. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice How long? For a while in his light. It's interesting, if you read Matthew 3, which is about John's ministry at the Jordan, and people are coming to him in droves to be baptized, and it's a really interesting passage because you wonder, what are these these people's motivations to come out to be baptized? What are they being baptized from? And he talks about it's repentance, the baptism of repentance, because the kingdom of God is here. But it's, it's just kind of a hard thing to understand. But anyway... The Pharisees and the Sadducees hear about all the stuff that's going on at the Jordan River, and so they come out to see what's going on. And and John, when he sees them coming, doesn't exactly get the relationship off to a positive note because he cries out, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come here to get away from the judgment that is to come? And then launches into about a five-verse diatribe that just lays them out for their hypocrisy. And so you'd get the impression that they liked John up to a point until he started calling them things like brood of vipers and calling them out for their hypocrisy. And that's, when, that's why Jesus says, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But his light was the truth that he bore witness to about who Jesus was, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and the Son of God and that he has come. Verse 36, so, so far we have two witnesses, right? God and John the Baptist. But the witness which I have, verse 36, the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So here's our first clue as to what it means that God bears witness of him. Because just to say God bears witness of him is a little intangible, it's a little kind of out there. But Jesus says the one of the ways he does that is the works he has given me to do. The works that I do show that God is the one who has sent me and that I am, in fact, his son. Now, think about this. What have these religious leaders just seen him do? They just watched him heal a man of 38 years of being an invalid, right? By the way, you know what's something really interesting as you read through all the Gospels? Never once do you ever see anyone questioning if Jesus really did a miracle. 
Even his bitterest enemies never, ever question whether what he, what he did was real. It's not like today, you know, like when you see faith healers and it's always something really nebulous. Jesus' miracles were unquestioned. And the same thing in this case. Nobody questions whether he did the miracle, right? And they just witnessed it, and Jesus says, those works, like the one you just saw, prove that I am who I say I am, that I am from God the Father. And then you think about it from their standpoint, what you'd have to say is, the very miracle that you witnessed proves that he is the one that you want to kill him for saying that he is. You follow that? It proves he's the son of God, and you want to kill him for saying he's the son of God. So one of the ways that God witnesses for him is, one of the ways that God bears witness for Jesus is through the works that he gives him to do. Well, then he continues the thought in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. He just keeps saying that. And now he gives a threefold description that basically threefold deficiency in the religious leaders that prove that they don't really know God. Number one, you have neither heard his voice at any time. Number two, nor seen his form. Number three, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe him whom he sent. You reject me. That means you reject God's witness. Even more, that means you don't know God. Because you have, not, you have neither heard his voice at any time, and yet I am God's voice standing right in front of you. You have not seen his form, and yet I am God in human form standing right in front of you. And you do not have his word abiding in you. I am the personification of God's word, again, standing right in front of you. And so from the standpoint of your perspective on God, it is completely skewed, and you don't truly believe him, nor do you worship him, because you reject me. John later sheds a little more light on this in his first epistle in 1 John. In 1 John 5, 9 to 10, he says this, and I'm going to read it out of my version, which is slightly different than than that's up here, and that's mostly because I can't see that one well enough to read it. It says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his son. Same thing that Jesus says here. And by the way, this is the Apostle John writing this in his epistle. So same writer, right? The one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. There's the second way God bears witness to the son. Not only through the works the Son has, but through the assurance of belief through God's Spirit that is in those who believe to start with. Belief leads to belief. Belief leads to the assurance of belief. So that God then essentially works through both outwardly, tangibly through the works of Christ and inwardly in the lives of the believers through His Spirit. But then notice how the verse ends. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the witness that God has borne concerning his son. So while Jesus says, you don't understand his voice, you haven't seen his form, you don't have his word abiding in you, meaning you have rejected him because you've rejected me, John takes it even further and says, not only that, but you've called God a liar. Because if you don't accept the son, then you don't accept the witness of God, and if you don't accept the witness of God, then you're essentially saying to God, you're a liar, your witness is is wrong, and you're lying. 
See, belief is never benign, is it? Or unbelief. Unbelief is never benign. Unbelief is never just, oh, well, hey, you believe your thing, I'll believe my thing. You'll never see that in the Bible. And these guys' unbelief has, the rejection of the Savior, the rejection of Jesus, has ramifications that are far beyond anything they comprehend at this point. And that's what Jesus is trying to make them understand. Well, he moves on to verse 39. And now here's our third witness. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The third witness that I call to the stand are the Scriptures themselves. Now, who is he talking to again? He's talking to guys who make their living searching, studying the Scriptures, expounding on the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures, interpreting the Scriptures. This is what they do. These guys know the law and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, upside down, inside out, up one side, down the other. They know it dead. And this is essentially what they've given their life to. And Jesus says, what you've given your life to, you have missed the entire point of, because it is these that bear witness of me. The scriptures that you know so well, you have missed the whole point of them, because the whole point of them is me. Even more, look what he says. You search, by the way, notice, you search. That's not casually read. That's not five minutes in the morning. These guys are in this, right? Studying, diligently searching. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that the study of scriptures will gain acceptance with God. But then he says, but I am the only one who can grant you eternal life. The the source of eternal life is me. I've already said that. And yet you refuse to come to me to get the very thing that you are searching for in the scriptures that point to me. Do you understand how ridiculous their situation is? And how foolish it is and how foolish they look. They have given their life to searching something for the sake of gaining life. And what they've given their life to points to the only one who can give them life. And they say, that's the one person we want to kill. We don't want them. I can give you what you, I'm the only one who can give you what you seek. And I'm the one you want to kill. When you see unbelief in this kind of picture, in this kind of black and white, it really does show the insanity of man apart from God, doesn't it? Well, let's jump down to verse 45, because verse 45, we see our last witness, our fourth witness. And he says, and we'll come back to 41, but let's go to 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was a hero to these guys. Why? Because Moses brought the law. Moses is the one who came down Mount Sinai with the law. God gave it to him personally. So to these guys, Moses is a hero. Moses is what really gives them their distinction as Israelites. And if you think about it, the Bible kind of backs that. Who are the only two people on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? It's Moses and Elijah, right? 
Moses, kind of the first great prophet. Elijah, one of the last great prophets. The two greatest prophets. The only two people in the Old Testament to ever see God, by the way. Both on Mount Sinai, interestingly. And yet Moses, so Moses is his big hero to them. And yet, what does the law point to? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about the law and the prophets? Don't think that I've come to, to get rid of the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets all point to Jesus. He's made the same point about the Scriptures. He's just kind of elaborating on it or specifying, making it specific to Moses. What Moses wrote pointed to me. So then he says, so if you reject me, what Moses wrote about, then you clearly don't believe Moses. Can you imagine how that sounds to these guys? I mean, honestly, by this time, these guys have to be frothing at the mouth. They are so absolutely livid with what he's saying. To tell them that they don't believe, that they don't believe God and they don't believe Moses because they're rejecting Jesus. I mean, they've got to be out of their minds at this point. But he's saying, you don't. And, and understand that at the judgment day, I won't have to accuse you because Moses will be the one who stands up and accuses you because he wrote about me and you didn't believe him. And then he takes it even further with the verse 45. If you don't believe his writings, which is what they've given their life to, right? If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You've missed it on him. You don't believe him. So that's why you don't believe me. Devastating. Well, that's the four witnesses, God, John the Baptist, the Scriptures, and Moses. So he's made his case. It's not just me testifying to me. It's these four others who testify to me as well. And now he's going to give four declarative statements, basically conclusions that he reaches in light of their rejection of him and their rejection of the testimony of the four witnesses. He says, here are the things that are clearly true about you. And it's four declarative statements. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. So he's going to draw a contrast. It's interesting. He's already said, I don't need man to witness for me. Now he says, I don't receive glory from man. Why is that? Why are both of those true? It's because he gets both from God, right? And really, again, if you want to think about it from the standpoint of throwing something else in for free, this is how all of us should be thinking. I get my needs met in God, not from you. That then frees me up to love you because I don't have expectations of you. My expectations are placed on God. My self-value is placed in God. I'm getting attention and approval and glory from God, not from you, so there I'm free to now love you. Because regardless of how you treat me, I'm getting what I need from God. That's what he's saying here. God bears witness to me. God gives me glory. I don't need that from man. But, verse 42, I know you. This is interesting because he probably just met these guys, right? But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Now, he's already said, you reject God's witness, therefore you, you reject God, you don't believe God. He's already said that. So if that's the case, then clearly you don't love God. And what you do isn't done because you love God, out of the motivation of loving God. That's not what drives you. And I know that about you. You don't do what you do for the love of God. Because God isn't the one on the throne in your life. He's not the center of your faith. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Another shall come in his own name. You will receive him. Now, why is that? 
Because if by Jesus coming in the Father's name, by Jesus claiming equality with God, that's a threat. But if somebody else comes and they just come in their own name, that's not a threat. And in that case, he'll be just like they are, so they'll accept that guy because there's nothing threatening about that. He's just like them. So from that standpoint, yeah, we'll accept somebody who comes in his own name. We can't accept you because you claim equality with the Father. You claim equality with God. And there's then verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Jesus says something really interesting in chapter 6 of Matthew in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of practicing your religion for the sake of others, for the sake of men. And then he goes on and gives an illustration. If you give your alms in front of other people for the praise of others, if you pray in front of other people for the praise of others, if you fast all for the praise of others, then you'll, you'll get the praise of others, and that's your reward in full. Congratulations. But you're, if that's the case, then you're not doing it for God. On the other hand, if you do those things in secret for God, then your God who sees in secret will reward you eternally. These guys are doing what they do for the sake of men. They don't want the praise and glory from God. They want the glory of others. And that's what he tells them. And interestingly, look at the first phrase of verse 44. How can you believe? And what he's saying is, your faith, your theology, your religion, being completely based on yourselves, because that's ultimately who anybody, if you, you only have two people you worship. You worship God or you worship yourself, the end, right? And that's what he's saying. You essentially worship yourself. You do everything what you do for the praise of others. If that's the case, you stand no chance at believing me. How can you believe if that's what your theology is? How can you believe if that's what your true beliefs are? Because when we put ourselves on the throne of our, on the throne of our lives, there's no room for anything else. And there's no way to believe in God. And that's what he's saying. Well, so that's the text. And you might say, okay, you know, I mean, thanks for explaining it, but what the heck do I do with it, right? And I will tell you that I, that's a good question on your part because I had the same question for quite a while as I was going through this. But here's the thing. I think there are two, there are all kinds of things we could draw from this, obviously, but I think there are two that have, have kind of both been sobering to me and been greatly encouraging to me. The first is this. Go back if you still have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, go back to the start of chapter 5, to the whole story of the healing. Just scan through that. Does anybody's Bible have anything in there about the religious leaders going to this guy who was healed and rejoicing with him? Is there anything in there about them coming up and saying, man, I don't know, I don't really like you carrying stuff on the Sabbath, and I'm not sure about the guy who healed you, but oh my gosh, this is fantastic. You have been healed from 38 years of being an invalid and of lying, basically lying beside a pool, hoping that someone will come and throw you into the pool and maybe you'll get healed. 38 years. And yet there is nothing in there about them saying, that's a neat story. How cool for you. That is fantastic. Nothing. And there's also nothing in the story about them praising, the, praising God or praising Jesus 
for healing this guy and doing such an incredibly neat thing for this man. There's nothing. And you know why that is? Because to the religious leaders, all they saw were two lawbreakers and a blasphemer. That's it. Guy carrying his bed on the Sabbath, a guy healing on the Sabbath, and the same guy who healed on the Sabbath claiming to be God and needing to be killed. That's all they saw, the end. There was no human interest, human compassion, human rejoicing, consideration, nothing. And you know why? And we've alluded to this. Because when you are the center of your universe, you are blind to just about everything else. These guys didn't even see this man. All they saw was a lawbreaker and a means to an end. I mean, look at what they, when they talk to him, how they interact with him. Who told you to pick up your bed? Well, the guy who healed me. Wouldn't your first thing be, at that point, go, somebody healed you? And instead they go, where is he? Right? Nothing. Because they're blind to it. When, when someone who has themselves on the throne of their lives is blind to other people, blind to what's going on with other people, being considerate of them, weeping with them, rejoicing with them, it doesn't exist. Other people are there for me. And then they're also blind to seeing how what God does in the world around them. And I think there's a pretty big warning there. Because it's easy to read this story and go, my gosh, how can they miss this? Their entire life has been given over to searching the Scriptures and waiting for the Messiah. Understand what their existence was like. To the Jews at this time, when your wife went into labor, okay, if she gave birth and it was a boy, you were like, it's a boy, maybe he's the Messiah. And if it was a girl, you went, oh, it's a girl. I mean, everything was built around waiting for the Messiah. And these guys should have been on top of it more than anybody else because they knew all the things about, when the, about the Messiah, and they had searched the Scriptures and so on and so forth. And yet here someone comes along, and it's not like Jesus is trying to keep it hidden, Right? Jesus literally is standing in front of them going, I am the Messiah. And look, I just healed that guy. That's stuff the Messiah stuff does. That's the stuff the Messiah does. And they go, no. And they're completely blind to it because all they see is themselves and all they see is themselves on the throne of their lives. And while it's easy to see that and go, oh my gosh, how could they be that blind? Or you might also say, well, they're clearly not a believer. They're clearly not believers. And that's true. But you know what? If you're like me, there's times in your life where you're just like them. And it's easy even as a believer to put, your, to put ourselves on the throne. And when that happens, we become blind to those around us. We become blind to what Jesus is or what God's doing in our lives. It's a very thankless way of living. It's a, very, it's a way of living that not praising God. You know why? Not because we make the decision, I'm not going to thank God. It's because we don't see it. We don't see God doing anything that's praiseworthy or that's worth giving thanks because we're blind to it. Man, I, you ought to read this passage, see how just idiotic these guys look, and then hold it up as a mirror and go, oh, God, help me not to be the same way. Second thing I think we can take, and this is much more, I want to send you out on a positive note, is that you ought to read from 19 to 47 and just go, what a Savior. Holy smokes. 
I mean, here's the thing you have to keep in mind when you read through this passage, and that is Jesus is saying these things for the sake of the religious leaders in real time, but who he's ultimately talking to is us. Why does John write the Gospel of John? At the end of, he says it at the, end of the, at the end of the Gospel. Chris has gone over this with us. These things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then in believing, you may have life in his name. So everything in the gospel has that as its, as its purpose. So the whole point of this being in here is so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in believing have life in his name. And this is Jesus saying to, his pe- to the people who will believe on him, this is who I am. This is who died for you. And the one who died for you is the creator and sustainer of the world. That's your Savior. It is God incarnate. And God incarnate is the center of the gospel, and the center of the gospel is God's glory and his love for you. And that same God left his spirit so that you can continue to serve him, walk with him, and that same God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Personal. And that we, as believers, we should read this and just go, my Lord and my God, my Savior, unbelievable that this is the one who died for me and wants to know me on an ongoing basis. Me, personally, not just some far away from a distance. Me, personally, he wants to walk with me. He wants me with him. He wants me to pursue him. He wants me to pray without ceasing. All of those things, that's this guy. And he puts that in there for our benefit. Oh, man, pray that you don't ever read John 5, and go away and go, yeah, whatever. You should read John 5, 19 to 47, and just fall on your knees and pray, and then just rejoice. And just think how tremendous to live when I live, to live where I live with the one I live, and how fantastic that is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that this is true. Thank you that we're not just reading something in a textbook or reading something in a religious book. But this is true. This happened. You spoke these words. And I thank you so much that not only is it true that you spoke them, but you spoke truth when you spoke them. And that any way we look at it, you are the one you said you were. You are God incarnate. You are God in the flesh. And yet you came and died for us. You were raised after three days. And you now serve at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us with your Spirit, ministering to us on a daily basis, pursuing us and asking us to pursue you. Help us to be in awe of this today. Don't don't let us discount this. And help us to be just floored by the privilege we have of being your sons and daughters. And save us, Father, from putting ourselves on the throne even as your believers, and going through times of wasted life because we just decided to take the reins back. Thank you that you love us so much and that you don't have wrath toward us, but mercy and love. In Christ's name, amen.